Hello and welcome to The Beautiful Game, a series exploring personal improvement and resiliency through interviews with soccer coaches from around the world. Beautiful Game is brought to you by Weasels FC, a brand for the tenacious, quick-witted, and occasionally underestimated. I am your host, Tony Niccolo. Join me as we learn to live, work, and play better with more confidence, resilience, and success. So I'm here today with two-time NCAA champion with North Carolina, two-time women's professional soccer or WPS, the now defunct league champion, uh, National Women's Soccer League or NWSL champion, played for the U.S. national team at every youth level and on the senior team as well. Yal Everbush is, see, I, I already forgot to say West. I forget sometimes too. It's okay. Uh, all right. I won't tell Aaron <laughs> that you are also the NWSL's executive director of the Players Union, which you founded, and you're the founder and CEO of Techni Football. And so I'm very excited to be with you today and discuss uh, resilience and continuous improvement and lessons from the game. Yeah, me too. I, I love it. I love the topic. So we usually start off, our sponsor is a brand called Weasels FC. And so the first question that we usually ask is, what do you think of weasels? Not the brand, just the animal. <laughs> it did bring a smile to my face, and I kind of wanted to laugh when you said it. So I feel like weasels are pretty funny. <laughs> All right. At UNC, you were an All-American midfielder, scored 26 goals in, in your career there. Um, but then in your professional playing career and on the national team, you sort of transitioned into playing more as a defender. What was that transition like for you? Yeah, so really my entire career, I was more of an attacking player. Like I started off actually as a youth player, a little bit as a forward. Then I was kind of an attacking center midfielder. And then really by the time I kind of was on the national team scene and a little bit, I mean, going into my professional career, I was more of like a defensive holding midfielder. And then actually only in the last three years really of my career did I transition to being a center back, which for me was quite funny because I always considered defending a serious deficiency of mine. But really it was interesting because uh, Vladko Andonovsky was my coach at the time and now the U.S. Women's National Team coach. And he was the first one who ever saw me potentially filling that role or, or believed in me to do that, even well before I believed in my own abilities to do it. So he was a huge kind of, he created this turning point for me as a player where I believed I could play this different role. And he really taught me to see defending in a way that allowed me to realize that I could do it and I could work at it and, you know, be okay at it. So really a very interesting transition towards the end of my career. And I learned to love a part of the game that I would say I didn't hate it before, but I certainly steered clear of defending as much as possible. Well, and we'll talk a little bit about the U.S. team, but I think that it's a place where we're seeing changes in the U.S. in general around the, the move towards ball playing center backs like we've seen in Europe for a while. Yeah, definitely. And I think it's kind of like a, a different view of, you know, I think the game as a whole is that every player attacks and defends no matter where you are on the field. So, and, and I think that's really valuable in, in any setting is that 
it's not in anyone's best interest to have somebody who's totally one-sided and can only offer one thing to a team. So I really started to appreciate and respect that and, and respect that I could still use the qualities I had but from a different spot on the field and actually use those qualities too to apply them in a different way to have kind of a defensive mindset. So a really interesting, interesting learning process for me. I like to ask people about coaches who along their playing career taught them resilience or, or other mental skills. And you and I have, have emailed about this and you suggested that your coach at North Carolina, Anson Dorrance, was definitely one of those coaches for you. You know, I was just in North Carolina with Anson and one of the things that we talked about was the, the atmosphere at North Carolina and the competitive cauldron. And from your background, I get the impression that that was a place where, you know, growing up, you played on boys teams to find that competitiveness and it was, it was hard, but that when you got to North Carolina, you really sort of found your tribe. What was it like in the cauldron and what made you love it so much? Yeah, you know, I think one of the really special things about what Anson has created at UNC is that everybody in the game at the elite level is competitive, but quite often it's in a kind of weird, secretive way. Like people kind of are, everybody knows they're, they're trying to be the best, but no one will acknowledge it. And everyone's friendly to your face, but kind of behind your back will be trying to like take your spot. But at UNC, what's really cool is it's all out in the open. Like literally you are ranked and you are trying to be better than you're the one next to you. And there's no secret about it. And so for me, that was really cool because I'm a naturally extremely competitive person. And I want it to be in the open. I want to know outright what I'm good at, what I'm not good at. And I want to say, you know what, I'm, I'm not the best of this, but I'm trying to be the best. I'm trying to beat you and literally say it to my teammate and my opponent. It's kind of a freeing thing, especially I think for female athletes to be in an environment where you know you're trying to literally, you're just trying to get the best of anyone and everyone who's on the field with you. So, and it certainly brings out the best in yourself as well as your teammates. So it's kind of like we are combating each other to make each other better. And it's, it's a really effective system. It's one of the things that I like about the animal weasels is they're very tenacious and, and often underestimated and, and really intelligent creatures. But the reason why people don't like them is because they have a willingness to kill you and move into your house. I didn't know this about weasels. Interesting. Yeah, and live in it as if it were their own. And so it's that idea of the competitiveness, you know, not being a, a dirty thing that it's, it's out in the open and, and that sort of management by radical candor and, you know, just being open and honest with what you're good at and what you need to improve and, and where you are in the, in the ranking order is, uh, is what I really liked about the cauldron idea too. Yeah, hundred percent. And I think as a player, it's very freeing. It can be very stressful, I will say, but it's freeing. I think that's the bottom line is that this is what everybody's kind of doing anyway. So why don't we just bring it out in the open? And so how do you manage that stress? I mean, there's there, you have a bad day, you drop in the rankings, you, you know, you're coming back from an injury, you lose your spot, it, lots of the, the various stress that happens in the game. How do you manage that? I think one of the most important lessons I learned at UNC was alongside this vicious competitiveness, and I mean vicious, like people were going harder in training and the warm up than they would even have to in a game. But is that we're all great friends and we absolutely loved the time we spent together and found so much joy and laughter. And I think this was a common theme I found as I kind of 
went up the ranks and started to play at higher and higher levels is that there's so much pressure and there's this stress of trying to be the best in this competitive environment, but it certainly um, counteracted in some ways by a wonderful sense of humor and really a great perspective. I think that's the one thing I would say about Anson is that it's probably very rare for somebody who's won as and been so ruthless in the way he's dealt with his players. But Anson has a wonderful perspective on where this all falls in the big scheme of things. Like this is a sport. We're taking the field and we're lucky to do this, but like there are way more actual stressful, tough things that happen in life. And I think he would always draw our attention to that and make sure that we had that in perspective. So I learned this wonderful balance when I was there of this extremely intense experience on the field, but then like such a joy and lightheartedness off of it. Were you there when he had started the sort of memorization of verses and poems? Yes, I did have to recite my core values. I have certainly forgotten <laughs> them since. <laughs> he and I chatted about that a bit. And, you know, one of the, the things that strikes me about you is that you are incredibly self-motivated. So I was thinking of the, the line that Shakespeare wrote in Julius Caesar, the fault, dear Brutus, is not in our stars, but in ourselves that we are underlings. And you seem like someone who has sort of joy in being self-determined and, and the master of your own destiny. You've spoken about how, you know, you're learning from your parents at an early age of looking at your goals and chipping away at them a little bit sort of day by day. They were both distance runners. You know, you went through the, the sort of difficult times of, of playing on boys teams because you had the dream of playing professionally and wanted to be in an environment that was going to push you and ton of individual training and ball mastery and, and learning those skills, which you then later brought into technique. And we'll talk about that. Where do you find the courage to be the master of your own destiny, that willingness to take responsibility for your own success or failure? That's an interesting question. I think I have certainly realized in kind of being at the tail end of my playing career and having started my own business and being involved in other things, I've realized how much it's so ingrained in who I am as a person. For a while, I very much linked it to my soccer career. You know, I have these goals and so I'm doing what I feel like it takes to achieve these goals. But quite frankly, it's in every fiber of everything I do. And it's become a joke with my friends and my husband. Like I almost can't do anything without acting like that. I think for me, it's where I derive a lot of my joy and excitement. And it's almost like my, my adrenaline boost comes from having this vision and this plan for what I want to happen and then systematically chipping away at it over time. And I think the feeling of being empowered to do that and to decide on these steps and carry it out over time, whatever it is, is like it's an obsession to me and it becomes this uh, really enjoyable process. And I definitely, I had experienced it like the first time I was aware of it was, was certainly through my soccer playing career. But now I realize I experience it in my business. I experience it with helping to build the players association. I experience it in literally anything and everything I set out to do. I have this same kind of um, method to the madness. And for me, it's just the way I live my life. So maybe it was a little bit of what I learned growing up from my parents, but I think it's certainly, it's certainly a natural tendency of mine above and beyond that. And so what is the method? Are there things that people who maybe aren't as ridiculously intense can do to sort of work towards a goal? Yeah, I think a big part of it I find is 
is starting and knowing a good starting point. So for me, a big thing, and this can really apply to any goal, I think, is that people often get intimidated by a bigger lofty goal and they simply don't start. Or they start at a point that they're chipping off too much of it to attack and it becomes scary and overwhelming. So for me, what my kind of method is, is if I have a really lofty goal, like I want to have a a really successful business or whatever it is, I then break it down to what I need to do every day that's actually really manageable within the day. So for me, it's about breaking down this big lofty vision into manageable pieces so I can actually get started and then feel the accumulation of them over time. So for me, one of the most powerful things that almost like I'm getting excited to talk about it, which is really, really nerdy of me, but the idea that you could do something 10 minutes a day over time and do that for years and then add up how much time that is over the years is really um, the accumulation of the little things I think is so big and people don't really realize sometimes they think, oh, this is too little. This can't make a difference. So they they abandon it or they try to do too much at one time and it feels like, oh, I, I can't handle this and there's no way I'm going to be able to do this for years and years. So they abandon it. So it's finding that manageable point. And for every person, it's probably very different. But I think for me, that's the the constant puzzle is finding the manageable point that I can literally do every single day for 10, 20, 30 years that I enjoy doing too. So I want to wake up the next day and do it. In that context, you've written about this and spoken about it, that sort of challenging to not be in complete control because of your battle with ulcerative colitis. And through that process also had to embrace some, some gray and uncertainty and came to a recognition that health is not universal. It's not just being a top athlete that it's very personal and what health means on on any given day is varied. How in that world where you own your own fate and make progress every day, how did you reconcile that with the health challenge? Yeah, I think it's it's been a huge learning process for me and really reshaped actually the way I think about a lot of things because it's interesting. In one sense, we there are so many things we can't control and and struggling with health, I think, is the biggest uh, wake up call to that that a person can experience. And so for me, it's kind of been twofold because one, I've realized truly it, to an even further extent how much we can't control, but then at the same time, it's helped me to highlight even more so the things that we can control. And for me, it's been very interesting because there are some days when I can't make what I would consider progress, quote unquote, in the traditional way. Like I can't work out or train, or I can't, uh, there have been times where I could not work on my business. I couldn't even open my computer. I really felt that bad. But then for me, progress was, okay, well, I'm resting because I need to get healthy, or I'm going to do a little research on the internet or maybe some alternative methods, or I'm going to enjoy this treat. I've been big on treating myself. I go and I get a a nice coffee with a ton of whipped cream or a, a scone at one point was like my big treat for myself. And so I think progress is can have a lot of meanings. And I've also had to let go of a lot of my rigidity surrounding progress and realize that I think that's the beauty of when you commit to doing something and it's really a long-term way of living is that if you have a period of months or even years where you have to depart from that a little bit, you've built such a momentum in your life of doing something a certain way that it's easy to get back to it. So for me, if I had to take even months off of training or exercising, 
it's natural for me to then build back in. And it's almost exciting to have this new challenge of building from nothing and starting fresh again. So it's very interesting because constant progress can mean a lot of things. And for me, it's certainly had some interesting gaps and I'd say uh, pivots along the last three years. Yeah. The, a journey of continuous improvement is not a straight line and that's okay. Yeah, exactly. And also continuous improvement might not be improving in the ways we think. Like I, I really believe that this has been a huge life lesson for me and having me reflect on the way I actually want to live my life. And I had taken some really positive character traits of the discipline, consistency, and I'd taken it to such an extreme that it actually became unhealthy for me. It's not necessarily what caused my illness, but it certainly contributed to a lot of stress and stress makes any physical um, ailment worse. So for me, it caused me to reflect and to put my efforts towards progress and doing those things, the discipline and consistency back into a, a healthy level in the perspective of what's most important, which is the joy in life and feeling good, which I wasn't feeling very good for a long time. Mm -hmm. And that just being present. You gave a keynote at a Manhattan high school that what really struck me about it was the openness and, and willingness to be vulnerable. And I think that especially as an athlete and someone who's the CEO and founder of a business that's the founder and executive director of the Players Union, being open to the world that you have negative emotions and feel badly about things sometimes, that vulnerability um, was really striking to me. And what I am wondering is if you're starting to see um, in the game and in business are we starting to move beyond the sort of antiquated notions of, of mental toughness where it's, you're tough, so you're always happy? I think we've definitely seen, I think there's an interesting shift. It's, I would say kind of maybe has to do with social media a little bit or the ease using the internet and technology to share things. I think there was a, certainly a very strong trend that still exists towards like an, displaying this ideal life and everybody displaying their best self that we all know has influenced people's mental health in kind of a negative way. And I do think there's a little bit of a pushback now and a shift going more towards a little bit more of the authenticity side of things. And I think the thing that has struck me most of anything as I've um, had the, the pleasure and the honor of playing with some of the highest level players and meeting some really famous, successful, by all accounts, like perfect people is that you learn very quickly that nobody is exempt from the normal life things of depression, anxiety, self-doubt, times where confidence is up and confidence is down. And so it was very striking to me as an athlete in particular to see these athletes who had on paper everything I wanted, yet still were going through the same struggles as myself. And I think now we are seeing a little bit um, in social media, a trend towards, hopefully it happens more so, but people being a little bit honest about that is that nobody uh, reaches a level of fame, wealth, beauty, where they no longer have the human emotions. And he, humans have a range of emotions. That's just the bottom line. So I think I personally, just in my in my personal life, I'm an oversharer of any everything and anything. So I've kind of tried to bring that into my public persona a little bit to let people know like I'm not ashamed of being human. I'm very human. I've been I've been sick. I have mean, bad thoughts. I'm like everybody has this stuff, and anybody who thinks that some people don't is just straight up wrong. So I think it's kind of like it's funny to me. 
almost when people are shocked by the things I share because I'm like, well, I am a human. You you have to know that. <laughs> Absolutely. That sort of being present and confident and sort of finding the space to be strong and confident at the same time that you are, you know, maybe not feeling the greatest or is something that sort of, I think that people struggle with, particularly when they lose a part of their identity as they've defined it. You're not playing professionally now, uh, but you still identify as a footballer, you know, and you see it, on, speaking of social media on Instagram, where you still go play and kick the ball around and work on ball skills and nutmeg your husband. It seems like that you've treated ball mastery and ball skills and time playing the game as an opportunity to be present. I think of it as when you walk onto the pitch at whatever level you're playing at, it's this great opportunity to not worry about anything else that's going on in the world and and has a, a meditative quality to it as a result. What Do you have advice for athletes who might be transitioning from a professional career, but also just for, for people in general who are retiring or have lost some part of their identity in, in terms of how do you mentally manage that? I think this is something I'm working through myself, certainly. There's always, I think, there's so many parts of our identity that are woven together. And I realized this about my professional career. I don't know if I will play professionally again, but I haven't officially retired. And to be honest, I don't plan on it because for me, like you said, I'm a footballer. I had the same mindset and love of the game long before I ever signed a professional contract. And I will maintain that long after. So to me, it seems kind of silly to announce an end to something that for me was always there and it's not ending. And I think that's the case. Like there are certain aspects of my professional career that may end, just like there were aspects of my career along the way that came and went. And I think as we transition into different periods of life, it's so important to not, not throw away all of who we were, all of what we were doing to move on to the next phase. There are certainly parts that we want to maintain that are comforting to us and really central and core to who we are as people. And I think for me, that is represented in going out and kicking around and doing my little training repetitions or whatever I do with the ball. It's like, that's something I love doing. I don't do it to be able to play on the national team or to be a professional soccer player. I do that because I love it. And it's like my meditation. And I think for everybody, there are those things. And so it's about identifying those things, whether it's in the workplace, in a career that you're leaving, or as an athlete in what you do on the field or the court or the rink, wherever you're doing your thing that maybe you won't be in that setting anymore, but you will certainly be taking away the part that's core and central to who you are and what makes you feel feel most yourself, I would say. And, and we all, if we think about it deep down, do know those things. So it's about like never, never losing those in the transition. I think those are the things you hold on to at all costs. You've used that sort of love of the game and the, the meditative quality of ball skills. You started a YouTube channel while you were playing in Sweden and then sort of built that into founding Techni Football, which is essentially a, a personal coach app where players can can really own their own development. And you started that before the YouTube channel, certainly you started that before there were individual skills coaches all over the place on Instagram. How do you think about helping other players own their own development? 
when I was coming up as a young player and decided that I was going to do this, I was going to figure out how I could make myself a professional player. It was really hard to find stuff like this. Like this is making me, I feel old when I talk about this, but it's like really the truth of how a lot of players in my uh, generation grew up. And certainly the ones who came before is like, my dad and I were ordering VHS tapes from soccer catalogs. I would stop it, rewind it, write down things, draw up little diagrams for myself and have these notebooks where I would write down like the skills I was learning from these videos. And I had wonderful coaches and mentors who also did this stuff with me in person, but it was kind of a, it was, I had to go out and really put effort to find this. And nowadays I think there's just so much stuff out there. You look up, you, you can look up anything and you, you'll find freestyle trick shots, all kinds of soccer things. But now it's actually, there's kind of the opposite problem. It's hard to actually know what to do depending on what your goal is. And so the initial idea behind my YouTube channel was not even, I wasn't even thinking that much about it, but I just wanted to share the things I was actually doing. I called them backyard skill challenges. What did I go out in my backyard and try? And I found that people were really into it. They, they were sending me back videos of trying it themselves. And it was a cool way to connect with people who also shared that same love of the game and that journey as me. And kind of like that that infuriating obsession with trying to master the ball, which like, no matter how good you are, you're never totally mastered it. So for me, that YouTube channel and the evolution into what's now technique football is an embodiment of the wonderful lessons and the things that I learned over the years. And it's about learning the skills and the progressions with the ball, but it's also kind of about that process of mastery. So allowing others to delve in and feel and track things the way that I would track things and kind of get hooked in the way that I got hooked. And I think that's really the core of what it's about. It's about learning how to learn more so even than the soccer part. And you've sort of lived that yourself. You've talked about, you know, doing a sort of personal MBA in terms of understanding business and reading and watching videos and learning what you needed to, to build the business. Are there things that you've learned in the game that are, that you've been applying in, in business life that's making it easier to grow a startup? Oh, 100%. I, I realized very quickly how eerily similar starting a business has been to my professional career. Like I have this long-term vision of where I want it to be or what I want it to be as a player. And I'm very far from it. And I always felt that way as a player. I still to this day feel like I'm far from the vision of the player I really want to be. And then I kind of break down the general journey I think it'll take. And with a lot of unknowns left in there, certainly, and a lot of decisions that will have to be made, but then it's about fitting together the pieces each day. Like, what do I need to do today to bring me a little closer to that journey so that tomorrow I can bring myself even closer? And then along the way, I think the big thing that's so similar is I'll have days when I feel great about how it's going. Like, oh, I got some positive feedback. Someone posted something great on social media about technique. I feel good. Same thing as the player. Like, oh, you have the day when everything went really well. You played well in training. You're starting. And then like so quickly it can change. You wake up the next day and you get a an angry email to support or your your coach said something that just let that little bit of uh, self-doubt slip in and like all of a sudden it's just complete opposite. Like, oh, all this work I'm putting in and it's just so tough and you have this opposite feeling. And then the next thing you know, something positive happens again and you're right back in the positive frame of mind. When you really care about something, I feel like we're all on that same roller coaster of being in some ways 
you try to fortify yourself, but you're really a little bit mentally fragile because you care so much that anything slightly positive or negative has the power to just like shift your whole day almost. I think it's also related to what you said about identity, that you can't put too much of your own self-worth and identity into the business that you're building. That's one part of your identity, and hopefully it's uh, successful, whatever you see that as. If it fails, it doesn't mean that you are no longer worthy as a human. I think it's a very fine line because certainly it's healthy to keep that separation. You have to as a as an athlete, as a business owner, anything you're doing. But for me and everything I do, I really pour myself into it so much so that it has the power to momentarily shake me or, or kind of ruin my day, which I try to keep a separation. And certainly I'm, I've learned to do significantly better at that over the years. And this is something that soccer taught me. I mean, it, had, it has to teach you or else you, your longevity and whatever you do is not going to be very good. If, you know, every time something slightly negative happens, you're just on a, you know, a, completely on a downhill spiral. But at the same time, I think that it's almost impossible to care deeply about something and not have that to some extent. And I've kind of just accepted that I've accepted being on the roller coaster ride a little bit and trying to minimize the ups and downs uh, as much as possible, but it's, it is part of the journey and it's definitely a familiar feeling. Anson tells the story of a player who had just started playing, I think maybe on the national team and they lost a game and, and their coach was like, Oh, what's it, what's it like to lose now that you have felt that for the first time ever? And she told that coach, what are you talking about? I lose every day in practice at UNC. It's that competitive cauldron where you get accustomed to failing and realize that it's okay. The same is, is true in the game and, and in business, that you're going to make mistakes and there will always be things that you can improve on, but that's part of the joy of it. Yeah, definitely. And I think that's really the core of what you learn at UNC is that open honesty about the competitiveness, but about the good and bad. And for me, it's a very freeing thing to just be able to accept it and move on. If, if you're trying to cover it up or if you're ashamed that those feelings really start to grow and they can be exacerbated. But that's why I'm very openly competitive about things, why I'm okay to admit weaknesses and mistakes. It's why I speak about my vulnerability. It's all part of this part of this openness that I think really I started to learn at UNC is that there's nothing to be ashamed of. And in doing that, you become even stronger and become better. You've been outspoken about some of the difficulty in life in the um, professional game, uh, particularly the women's game. Well, pretty much only the women's game, the, the, the men's game there. They've got their own challenges, but they are orders of magnitude different than, than the women's game. We're starting to see some change there, but you wrote a New York Times article about some of those challenges and started the NWSL Players Union, which you are now the executive director of as well. What problem did you see and, and how is the Players Union solving it? Well, I think it's there were a few reasons that there absolutely needed to be a players association and a union to represent the NWSL players. And first of all, it's that every every sports league has that. Every industry has some type of voice for the employees. And so there was simply no, the, the players had no voice, nowhere to go to ask questions, nowhere to go to, you know, if there was a problem, it ended up on Twitter or somewhere where it shouldn't. And so 
for that reason, initially, we started to establish some organizations surrounding a couple, you know, team reps per team and a direct connection with the league where we could get questions answered and bring issues to the league rather than just making them public because we had nowhere to go. In a larger sense, though, I think that what we see as professional players on the women's side is there are so many things surrounding the player experience that go so far beyond just the salary. And I saw this myself, you know, I started my business. Well, not that I didn't want to start a business anyway, I, I hadn't really thought about it, about it, but I started it as an active player simply because I wasn't making enough money to live. So the players have the need and a desire to continue to build their personal brands, to continue their education, to start to build businesses and second sources of income while they're playing. And there needs to be support for them to do that. And for me, it's a really important thing for the longevity of the league and these players' careers that there's support parallel to what the league can offer. So if we know that the league will grow as quickly as it can, salaries will go up when they can, when the money is there, when owners are making more money and the seats of stadiums are being filled and there are more corporate sponsors coming on board and you know big broadcast deals to broadcast the games and all this visibility, then eventually it trickles down and players can get paid more. But in the interim, what I don't want to see is players leaving the game because they can't make enough money or staying in the game because they feel like they can't do anything else. And for me, starting my own business was hugely empowering because I realized, okay, one, I don't need to play. I'm choosing to play. I could do something else. I have this business. Mm -hmm. And so that then is very freeing. I'm choosing to do this. So if it's tough or there's a situation that's not ideal, I know like I'm putting myself in this situation because it's my choice. But then also, I didn't want to ever have to step away from playing professionally because of a reason having to do with money or logistics of, you know, financial things. So for me, I wanted to fortify my life to know that I could keep playing and I was choosing to keep playing for as long as I wanted to. And then when I wanted to step away, I could step away. Unfortunately, my sickness <laughs> kind of changed that up. But I think that we're seeing players stepping away because they can't justify it as a career path financially and players staying in the game because they simply don't know what else to do. We have both right now. And so as a players association, a big goal of ours is one, obviously to be the voice of the players and to work with the league to continue to make improvements to the player experience, but then also to support the players in their lives parallel to this, to find them opportunities for internships, paid appearances, you know, to live a life that's more full and supported based on where the game stands right now and, and what their salaries and working conditions are like. Well, and we're starting to see some of those improvements in the U.S., and we're seeing a lot of those improvements in other leagues outside of the U.S. as well. You know, starting to see the Atleti women's team fill the stadium in Madrid, some other, you know, it's not everywhere, and there are certainly still challenges in the English league. But, you know, support globally for the women's game is growing, and I think that you're you're starting to see you know, some of your efforts pay off where there is that sort of new sponsors are coming in. There's more support for, you know, building personal brands and identity outside of the game. But one of the things that you've talked about is that there's sort of a danger of U.S. soccer in general kind of falling behind and, and some of that being related to the pay to play model. But what I really liked about your interview is that you sort of had this this notion that elite and entitled cannot really coexist that in a world where the 
the parents and players think they are customers, it's sort of antithetical to the nature of competitive sport. And that, so I, I wonder how, how you think about, you know, the next generation of the game in North America, but, but in general, as we see more sort of pay to play and personal trainers in, in Europe as well, and how culturally, how do we celebrate competition, celebrate winning and losing and, and that process of really having to compete to succeed? I think a lot of it has to do with the way we frame everything that's going on. You know, pay to play is an interesting, it gets brought up a lot because it's an easy, like it's a phrase that represents something, but it represents something so much larger than literally just the fact that people pay dues to participate in the clubs. I think that what it represents for me personally is a system that's backwards in a lot of ways, having to do with the competitive model and the fact that in my opinion, the way it should work is that you don't, you as a family, as a parents and player, do not decide if you're good, if you're elite, and if you're going to pay to participate in an elite program, you earn the right to participate in that through the decisions you make and how hard you're working and your actual ability. So I don't know the answer for how to kind of flip the pyramid, but right now what we have is a system where families opt in to being good at soccer well, quote unquote good or elite at soccer because they are paying to play for an elite team, paying for the best coaches, the nicest uniforms. Whereas in a system that I think will truly allow for the best talent to rise to the top, everybody is participating and the players who are truly elite or who are good for their age groups are self-selected through the work they're putting in in their performance and they get the further opportunities that then to me, Uh, need to be free of charge or available to everybody. So I think we need a bigger pool of players who will have access to potentially moving up in the pyramid. But then as the pyramid moves up, we need to be more ruthless and uh, more honest with these families about their actual ability of their kid. There's so many families who think that they have a really elite youth player and it's quite simply not the case. They're not good. And nothing against the kid. They might still be loving playing the game, having a great time with their teammates and and like competing, but it doesn't mean they're competitive to make it up the pyramid and potentially eventually sign a professional contract or represent our country. So I think that in one way, we need to be a lot more inclusive. And in another way, we need to be a lot more cutthroat. And right now we kind of have it opposite. We're cutthroat in terms of who can participate. And then we're too inclusive within that group. Whereas it needs to be the other way around. We need to be inclusive in terms of who can participate, but then super cutthroat as it moves up through the pyramid. And that cultural idea of radical candor and and the competition being more open right where one family knows that their kid is competing against another kid for a spot and that's okay and you don't have to be sneaky and political and just try and pay more exactly as you say that notion that we are more inclusive in the joy of the game and everyone can play but not everyone can play at the highest level and i think it makes it more enjoyable for everyone quite honestly because everybody knows what they stand and they're playing at an appropriate level and they've they're playing there because they've earned earned the right to play at that level so whereas it might on face value kind of piss some people off in the start. I think that a model like that, just like at UNC, you think like, oh, wow, that could cause problems when people are so directly competing. But the way it plays out is it doesn't because it's so open and honest. If you're not starting and you look at the list and you're ranked number 
30 out of 32, you know why you're not starting. You're not going to be bitter. You're not going to be, your parents are not going to be calling up Anson and and complaining. It's quite simple, you know, but I think the same thing would develop if our system was a little more open and honest about where everybody stands in terms of their ability. And then it also allows the players who are not there right now to close the gap and be there eventually. Right now, if they don't know that there's a gap and they don't understand that they're not maybe elite enough to achieve the goals they say they have, we're doing those players a disservice. I do clinics for players sometimes in person, less so now, less since launching Techni, but I used to do a lot of them. And I would ask the group of players, you know, who here wants to play high school soccer? Everyone raises their hand. Who here wants to play college soccer? You know, everyone raises their hand. Who here wants to be a professional soccer player? Everyone's like, their hand is like going as high as they can. And then I watch these players through the clinic and and their, one, their ability. And two, you know, it may sound a little harsh, but yeah, their ability and also the focus with which they're doing what I'm asking. And it's so far off from anything that would be necessary to potentially get them, I'm talking about even to the high school level, let alone a professional level, there's such a disconnect in the understanding of what that takes. And I truly believe in other countries because it's a lot more ruthless, players get it. They know when, if they say they want to be a professional player at a certain age, they have an understanding of, even if they don't necessarily have immense talent, the focus with which and the intensity with which they need to be doing what they're doing in order to even allow that possibility. And here I kind of think understanding is certainly lacking. Well, it's also a culture of the business of soccer as, as opposed to love of the sport itself. And I think your point is a fantastic one. I, I took my eldest son to train with the Legia Warsaw Academy in Poland. And, you know, here in Canada, he's playing up several age groups, blah, blah, blah. And we go there and you know, he was one of the worst kids and quickly improved because he was in that environment. And what really struck me about it was the day that we, he arrived in the locker room, he was there with all the kids and, and these are, you know, nine and 10 year old kids and joking around, having great time being kids. And they stepped onto the pitch and he looked around and felt like, are these the same kids that were just joking around in the locker room? That, that level of, of seriousness and intensity in playing the game and competing was really eye opening for him. Yeah. And I think that's the truth of it is that there is a joy in that as well. It's a different joy, but the serious intensity, if if your goal is to really make it to the top and if they're fighting for a spot in an academy system, that's necessary. And it's fun because that's what it's all about. That's why you're doing it. But I think here we have kind of the wrong tension and we're serious about kind of the wrong things having to do with the scoreline and whether the ref made the right decision, a lot of stuff that yeah, we're just, we're a little off and there's a lot of people doing great things. And I think we're aware of the problems in this country, I think, but there's certainly a lot of work that needs to still be done to kind of right the ship in certain ways. And we'll end on that theme of making progress and improving. You write a lot, both your blog and and publicly. How do you evaluate your own work to make sure that you are continuously improving? Well, I wish I wrote more at this point, actually. I've gotten away from it a little just because I've been uh, too busy, unfortunately, but maybe this will spark me to get back to it. I think for me, my way of evaluating has changed significantly in recent times. And it has to do with a lot of my thought process as to, okay, well, what's my end game here? Like, If I was 
the soccer player I always dreamed of being. If I had a business that was doing X, Y, and Z in revenue and I was working two hours a day, whatever my, you know, my end game, basically like if these visions were complete, how would I want to feel and what would I want my life to be like? And I think for me, progress has evolved towards living more like that now. So if my ideal life is on a beautiful sunny day to not be stuck inside and at my desk on my computer or not feel stressed to do whatever it is that I think I need to do to get to the next level and I can enjoy being outside with my dog or going and getting coffee and relaxing a little, I think for me, progress was always about doing what it takes regardless of anything else going on. And I do think that's important. It's important to spend many, many years and develop a habit of that. But now it's shifted for me towards thinking more about why I'm doing this, what I want the end result to be and achieving more of that now. Like why wait? What am I waiting for to work a little less and enjoy myself? Or what am I waiting for to go out and kick around on the sunny day if that's what I'd rather be doing than be at my computer? So I think it's a balance. And so what I've realized is that I was afraid for a long time of enjoying myself too much and losing that drive or the rigidity or the discipline. But realistically, I've gone so far in that direction of those things that I'm never going to lose it. And I realized that and I've loosened up a little bit in terms of enjoying myself more now and taking a little more easy on myself. So for me now, that's how I measure my progress is like, this is all great. I want to grow my business. I want to continue to get healthy and enjoy playing if I can, when I can. But really, I want to feel the way I'm doing those things to feel now. I think that's a, a great lesson for all of us that you can be very ambitious, but also present. Certainly. It's hard. Thanks so much, y'all. I really enjoyed the discussion. Oh, as did I. Thank you. Thank you for joining us today on The Beautiful Game. We hope you also have some new ideas and inspiration to live, work, and play better. Please subscribe to get future episodes. And you can join the conversation with your host, Tony Niccolo, on Twitter at WeaselsFC. FC.